Continuing in the Gospel of Matthew, we're at chapter 9 now. If you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles, that's page 813. If you're new to the Bible, uh, we are at the beginning of what we call the New Testament. This is the second of two big pieces of the Bible. Uh, We call the big numbers on the page chapters. The little numbers are called verses. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. I'll read verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for speaking to us. And we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things here in your word. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit who enables us with our own languages to know you, to hear you, and to speak back to you. Help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. An older pastor told me one time that he figured that about 90% of the time what people think is their problem is not really their problem. One of the great challenges of ministry, one of the great challenges of being in relationship with anybody is how to help someone to see a problem that they can't see or that they don't want to see. Today we have a story about a man coming to Jesus looking for help with a very real and very painful problem. But it's not his real problem. It's not his deepest problem. Jesus can and does meet our needs, but he's most interested in meeting our deepest need, the need to be reconciled to the God who created us. We need to be reminded today about what our greatest problem really is. We have a lot of problems today. If we went around the room and we all wanted to talk about them, we could be here all day long. But we need to remember what our greatest problem is. And we need to come to Jesus as the only one who can solve it. The man's problem, of course, is a medical problem. And so my headings today, trying to be clever, are going to follow the theme. Uh, The symptom, the disease, and the healer. So first, look at the symptom. Uh, You see it right away at the beginning of the story. Uh, In verse 1, you hear that Jesus has come back from his journey across Lake Galilee. You might remember, if you've been around the last couple weeks, that uh, the coastal town of Capernaum, there on the Sea of Galilee, was Jesus' home base. Uh, Because of his miracles and because of his teaching there in that area, Jesus has attracted huge crowds of interested people. And so to get a break from all the crowds, Jesus takes his disciples across the lake 
On the way, Jesus demonstrated his authority over natural chaos by miraculously stopping this huge, overwhelming storm. And then last week, we saw that once Jesus got to the other side of the lake, he demonstrated his authority over spiritual chaos by miraculously delivering two pagan men from demonic oppression. Uh, But then last week, as we were finishing that story, we were surprised to see that the city that was nearby where these two men were living, that nearby city begged Jesus to leave because they found his presence too troublesome and too disruptive. So now Jesus has come back to Capernaum and the locals have caught wind that he's there again. And so, of course, once again, they are swamping him, seeking more of his healings. Uh, We've already heard earlier in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus has been healing paralyzed people all over this area. And so now another paralyzed man comes to him. He's just one more of them. Except, of course, this poor disabled man cannot come to Jesus. He has to be brought to Jesus. His friends had heard about Jesus' power over disease and over disability. And so they bring him to Jesus on a cot. They're thinking, perhaps we can catch Jesus' attention there in the midst of all the crowds, all these people who want his attention, who want his own miraculous touch. Perhaps our friend here can also be healed of this terrible affliction. In the ancient world, of course, almost everybody was a manual laborer of some sort. And so the inability to move, at least his legs, probably more, the inability to move would have been utterly debilitating, utterly isolating. So we're excited to hear in the middle of verse 2 that Jesus does notice them. With everybody all around, Jesus notices these friends bringing their friend on the cot. But we're not told that Jesus sees them. Strikingly, we're told that Jesus sees their faith. He doesn't only see the paralyzed man's confidence, his trust that Jesus is the one who can take care of me. Uh, But also, Jesus sees the same confidence of his friends who are just carrying him there. The friends are going to quickly fade from view in this story. But I think this is a beautiful reminder of how we can and we should do what we can to bring needy people to Jesus. To receive the healing that only he can give. And that doing that, bringing needy people to Jesus, is an act of faith. It's an act of faith that Jesus notices and Jesus commends. In many ways, my job as a pastor is to be like these friends, not to bring you to myself or to my own ideas, but to bring you to Jesus, to bring you to his healing word of power. Uh, It's same for parents. Uh, Parents in our church, when you take vows at the baptisms of your children, you are vowing to bring your babies and to bring your kids to Jesus, to trust that he can and he will do what's best for them. This poor man and his friends trust that Jesus is going to do for them what he's done for so many other people in the town. They've come to Jesus for physical healing. They've come for salvation. The word for salvation in Greek is often translated as healing in other places. Uh, They want him to be saved from this horrible disability that has radically distorted his life with its daily humiliating reminders of his weakness. And so, of course, they think that this man's greatest problem is his physical paralysis. But Jesus looks at this withered man on the cot and he says, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. That's weird. 
They bring a paralyzed man. Clearly, huge problem in his life, totally isolating him from work and from society and from relationship. But Jesus is talking about sin. What's he doing? Doesn't Jesus see the real problem here? Doesn't Jesus care? What they thought was the man's sickness is really just a symptom. And so you move from the symptom to the disease, to the real disease. He's been overlooked and ignored by so many people for who knows how many years. And the first thing that he hears from Jesus is a tender but firm command. He says, take heart. It means be courageous. He's saying, don't be afraid. Everything's going to be fine. You've come to the right man. No need to be worried anymore. In the last couple of episodes in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Matthew has been underscoring for us the power and the majesty and the strength of Jesus. But here you see again Jesus' tender love for the weak. He says, take courage. And then do you notice how Jesus addresses him, the title he uses? Jesus says, my son. Literally it says, my child. It's a term of endearment for somebody who ranks lower than you. It's a language of relationship. It's the language of welcome. And this lovely address tunes our ears to hear Jesus address his real disease. Not his paralysis, as bad as it is, but his sin. Jesus says, take courage, my child. Your sins are forgiven. This is not what they came for. But it's what this man most desperately needs. Then and now, the word forgiveness is a financial term. Uh, Jesus is saying something like this. He's saying, your sins are remitted. Uh, They are paid off. They are marked down to zero. Every week we pray the Lord's Prayer together in church. And right at the very center of that prayer, we say together, forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Sin is the Bible's term for all the ways that we have corporately and individually rebelled against God and rejected his generosity. Sin is a condition. It is a cancer that we inherit from our parents all the way back to our first parents, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's law in their arrogant quest to rule themselves and to rule this world apart from God and apart from his wisdom. But the disease of sin manifests itself in all kinds of specific ways. Not just in our actions, not just what we do, but also in our thoughts, in our desires, our emotions, our priorities, our tendencies, our failures. Sin is not only what you do against God, it's also what you don't do for God. And even more than what you do or what you don't do, sin is also what you are and what you are not. Every problem and all suffering in this world, the Bible says, is ultimately a symptom of the much deeper disease of sin. That does not mean that this man's paralysis is necessarily the direct result of some sin that he committed. Although that's possible, the Bible says. And when I say that suffering and problems are just a symptom of the sin disease, 
I'm not only referring to situations where some spiritual disorder leads to physical suffering, such as with gluttony or addiction or worry or workaholism. Our deepest problem is ultimately a spiritual problem. Our deepest disease is our moral paralysis. Uh, We've been hearing a lot lately in the news about debt ceilings and solving all these problems of debt. Uh, They will do what they always do. They'll just print a lot of money to solve it and they'll worry about it another day. Uh, Spiritually speaking and morally speaking, there's no money printer. There's no way that we can print ourselves out of the debt that we find ourselves in. It truly is impossible to get out of it. It's not just that we happen to be distant from God. It's that left to ourselves, we naturally want to be distant from God. And so he's right to respond, the Bible says, with judgment. His wrath against us and against his world is a good and an upright response to the mutiny of his own creation. The twistedness and the brokenness of this world and our lives are the result of humanity's and our own rebellion against his wise, generous rule. The Bible says that suffering is the symptom. Sin is the disease. And so Jesus goes straight to the real issue for this man. He says, my child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus cannot give him anything better than this. He says, you are restored to your creator. You are in the right with God. Your debt is wiped out. There's nothing better for you to hear and to know today than that God has forgiven your sins. All the ways that you failed, all the ways that you have used other people and trampled upon them, all the ways that you have polluted and defiled yourself, all the ways that you have fallen so far from what you know you could be and should be. But worst of all, all the ways that all of this has put you in debt to a holy and a righteous God who sees and knows the darkest corners of your heart. All the things that we like to pretend are not there that maybe for many of us we have forgotten are there. He sees all of it. Jesus says to those who come to him in faith, My child, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is not just speaking in the abstract. He does not just say, sin is forgiven. He says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus is not just saying, your sins are forgivable. He is not just saying, God is a forgiving God. He does not just say, I want to tell you about God's kindness. Jesus is instead nonchalantly, amazing how nonchalant he is about this. He's nonchalantly asserting something of earth-shattering importance. Something that would make him completely insane or completely evil if it were not true. He's not just saying, I am a channel of God's forgiveness for the world. He says, I am the source of God's forgiveness for the world. Jesus is saying, I grant to you an eternity of joy with my own gift of God's forgiveness. Now, is that good news 
in our world? In many ways, we live in a society that seems to be devouring itself with a demand for justice. But even then, our fixation on justice in this world is hardly ever concerned with justice in the never-ending world on the other side of God's throne of judgment. We talk about justice quite a bit. Uh, We talk very little about forgiveness, let alone forgiveness in the next world. Uh, One essay that I read a few months ago and found very helpful, speaking of this contemporary quasi-religious fixation on identity politics, said this. He said, in the ledger book of cancel culture, your assets cannot possibly pay off your transgression. Similar to Christianity, you're burdened with a debt that's beyond measure, which you can never repay, no matter how substantial your assets. But unlike Christianity, there is no promise that Christ will pay off your unpayable debt. There's no gospel good news for the canceled in this new American religion. This is good news for our world. Jesus says to this man, he says to us today, God brings healing. God can heal the ultimate disease, our sin. It's an amazing and a shocking thing to say. Who could possibly dare to suggest that he has made you right with anybody, let alone the almighty creator? Jesus confidently tells us that forgiveness not only can be ours, but that when you trust in him, when you come to him in faith like these men did, that it is yours. The religious leaders standing there uh, immediately understand what's at stake. They know what he's saying. They say, this man is blaspheming. He is saying and doing something that only God has the right to say, that only God has the right to do. They say, who do you think you are? You're making a mockery of the one holy God. You can't talk like that. But then in verse 4, Jesus can tell what's going on in their minds somehow, and he calls them on it. He says, hey, you guys over there, religious people, why are you thinking evil things in your heart? He says, for you to doubt that I act and I speak directly and immediately for God is evil. Jesus is throwing their accusation right back into their laps. He says that doubting me is the real blasphemy. Jesus leaves us absolutely no room to patronizingly view him as just another religious teacher, uh, another version of Moses or Muhammad or Buddha or Martin Luther King Jr. But how can you know that Jesus really is the source of God's forgiveness? Can we know that the disease really has been healed? What about the symptoms on top of it? We've been saying that the real disease is sin and we can't only be dealing with the symptoms. But Jesus proves for them here and he proves for us today that he does deal with the disease by dealing with the symptoms. The dealing with the symptoms is the proof of his dealing with the disease. And so now we get to our final heading. Uh, We move from the symptom to the disease to the healer. The healer. Uh, Jesus says to these men, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. If Jesus is who he says he is, then of course both of them are easy for Jesus to say and to do. But it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven because it's not immediately obvious whether or not it's true. Jesus is speaking to infinite, eternal, spiritual, heavenly realities. 
But whether or not you have the ability to command a paralyzed man to hop up and walk around and go home, that can be immediately verified. And so Jesus says, I will deal with the visible symptom so that you know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins, that I have the power and the right to heal the invisible disease beneath the visible symptom. And so he says to the man, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And Matthew tells us that he rose and he went home. Uh, Jesus did not do miracles for everybody back then. Sometimes Jesus refused to do miracles for people who really wanted them, who really wanted evidence of who he said he was. And he said, no, I'm not here to do tricks. He didn't always do miracles for everyone. He doesn't always do miracles for everyone today. The miracles that he did do, the evidence that we do have for them, are sufficient evidence for us today to accept his claim to be the son of man. We should not need any more than he has given us already in these historical records of his ministry on earth. Jesus claimed to be the son of man. You might remember from a few weeks ago when Jesus first used this term. It's his favorite term to refer to himself. Uh, It has a couple of shades of meaning all throughout the Bible, but one of the more important ones is from a part of the Old Testament called the prophet Daniel. Uh, This term is used uh, to describe God's final cosmic judge over all of eternity. Daniel the prophet sees a vision. He says of one like a son of man going to God's throne and receiving dominion from him. Jesus is again asserting that he is God's cosmic judge. He exercises God's own authority to forgive all of our sins, not only in heaven, but also Jesus goes out of his way here to tell us that he has this authority to do it here on earth. Here, right now, in this world, Jesus has and exercises this authority. Now, how does he do that? Uh, Jesus does not just give us God's forgiveness. Uh, because he has maybe convinced God to be nice, to mellow out, to take a chill pill. Jesus doesn't do this because he's come to tell us that God's willing to just kind of sweep it all under the rug and act like nothing's happened. If God ignored our sin, that would be unjust. That would make for an evil God. Instead, Jesus can offer and guarantee God's forgiveness because in sending his own son to die on the cross, God himself is paying our debts. Jesus on the cross is God in the flesh. He's God the Son coming at the behest of God the Father to carry the full and the terrible cost of God's righteous judgment on our sin so that we could go free, so that our slate really could be wiped clean in the cosmic courtroom of God. Mercy is not a replacement for judgment. Mercy flows out of judgment. We can receive God's blessing because Jesus is the one who suffered God's curse on the cross. And like the miracle of new life here for the paralyzed man, Jesus' miraculous resurrection from the dead a couple of days after his death, like with the paralyzed man, that miraculous restoration of life demonstrates that Jesus really had secured and granted our forgiveness. The resurrection is God's stamp of proof on the validity of what Jesus was doing on the cross. Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins for God and as God. And as he showed through his power over the storm and over the demons and over this man's paralysis, Jesus does have the authority and the ability to rescue us from all of the suffering of this world. Jesus' forgiveness has made it possible for this man to be healed and to go home. And it's the same for us today. When we come to Jesus for God's forgiveness, 
He not only gives it to us, the best possible thing that he could give us, he also assures us that one day he will heal us from all of our suffering, that he will send us home. And life in the church, even today, begins to be a bit of a glimpse of what that new home will be like. The ways that we care for each other, the ways that we uh, meet each other's needs in this life are a little bit of a glimpse of the way that God will one day fully and finally restore everything in this world. We'll go home to a restored, recreated, resurrected world without oppression, without sickness, and without fear. The crowds that day, we hear in this last verse, verse 8, they see Jesus exercising his authority and they tremble. It says that they were afraid when they see Jesus do this. That any man at all could and would bring God's forgiveness into this world for helpless people like you and me, this is something radically new. This is a cosmic revolution. It's something that demands a response. Matthew tells us that realizing all of this made them afraid because they understood that Jesus was something far more important than a teacher. Something far more important than a wonder worker or a revolutionary. That he was and he is God in the flesh. They trembled. But Matthew tells us that they also worshipped. He says they glorified God. They praised that God would do such a thing as to send his forgiveness to be lavished on us at the hands of this man. And so what good news for us today in our own moral sickness, our own guilt, our shame, our pollution, our failure, our weakness. Like the crowd, this good news should move you. It should move you emotionally and it should move you spiritually. We too, like them, need to tremble and need to worship because of this. But it should also move us in another way. Seeing this about Jesus, like these men with their friend, should move us toward Jesus. Like that paralyzed man, come to him. Come to him. Find healing for your deepest disease. Let's pray. Jesus, we do come to you in faith. Not all of us are physically disabled, but we are all suffering. And we are all spiritually disabled. So we come to you seeking again the healing that only you can give. Teach us to tremble at your might. Teach us to worship. But most of all, teach us to come. And help us there to find you ready and eager to heal. In your name. Amen.